Good morning. It is uh, it's great uh, to have Andrew with us this morning. Uh, you uh, you heard him shredding on uh, not only uh, is that okay, I'm just I'm so embarrassed. I should be able to tell violin or viola is violin. Okay, I, you just were playing it on the really really low. I you're right. Well, you you know I live in a house with musicians, but they play wind instruments and much well oboe harp anyway. The point is, he sounded good. Um, and uh, you also heard him shredding there on the bass, on the uh, 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 Hofner bass. That, of course, is the uh, famous as the bass that Paul McCartney used, although if Andrew really wanted to be authentic, he would have played it left-handed. Just saying. So, <clears throat> so one, one thing I'm disappointed about this fall um, is that I'm not teaching. I, I, you know, especially since the, uh, was it the other week... We had all the teachers stand up, and we prayed for them, and I didn't get to be one of them. I, I, last couple of year, semesters, I had a chance to teach a, an introduction to theology class at Loyola. They didn't need me this fall. Hopefully, they'll need me in the spring. But one of the things that's been really fun for me about teaching this class is basically I've got 30 18-year-olds who are fairly undereducated when it comes to theology. Uh, my my friend uh, Steve, who, who's, who was a department chair, said it is impossible to underestimate their ready, level of readiness for this course, uh, and uh, and I found that to be true. And one of the re- one of the ways in which people are unready to encounter Scripture in a serious and mature way is that they have come from a background where they have been taught all kinds of stories from the Bible but they haven't been taught really what the Bible is trying to get across with these stories. So, for example, they get told the story of Noah, right? You remember Noah, who is the man who walked with God, and God said, you need to build a boat, and everybody made fun of him, and they thought he was dumb, but he built the boat, and he put, took two of every animal on it, and, and then afterwards some bad things happened. Uh, but... Uh, they, they heard that story and they only hear about this as a story of, of Noah as a person who is faithful, right? But bad things happen. Like Noah getting off the boat was not the end of the story. The end of the story involved Noah doing some very embarrassing things. Or Abraham, right? We, you may have learn the song at some point father abraham had many sons many sons had father abraham and i am one of them and so are you so let's just praise the lord and you hear about abraham as this paragon of faith and then you read the story of abraham and you realize that not once but twice did he try to pass his wife off as his sister so that things would go well with him with powerful foreign leaders we read about hear about rebecca she's one of the she's married to isaac abraham's son rebecca who was also kind of shady. Helped her son Jacob to trick her husband Isaac. And then Jacob, my goodness. I mean, Jacob, who's supposed to be, in a lot of ways, the, the star, right? He's the one that the whole nation gets named after, Israel. And, and he's the guy who cheats his brother out of his inheritance. And then he cheats his father-in-law out of half of his flocks. Of course, his father-in-law was trying to cheat him. It's kind of like you know, watching the Patriots and Steelers play. You don't want anybody to win. <laughs> and then we get to, we get to Ruth. 
and Naomi. And you may have read the story of Ruth as a charming romance. Go back and read it with open eyes. You find out that Ruth does some things that we might not encourage our daughters to do at the urging of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi, by the way, and Ruth are part of our story of David. Because Ruth was the mother of Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Ruth is David's great-grandmother. Naomi is his great-great-grandmother. And the truth is that these stories we read in Scripture are not designed, I think for the most part, for us to look at them and emulate the people in them. And yes, there are places where we read stories in Scripture and, and the, the lesson is to go and do likewise. But quite often we read and the lesson is go and do otherwise. The fact is God uses some really messed up people to accomplish His purposes, doesn't He? Joe firmly agrees. Now the question is, why? I mean, if he's God, why would he use messed up people? Why would he use people who are broken? Why would he use people who have bad habits, who have addictions, people who are caught in ingrained patterns of sin? Why would he use people like that? I want to suggest three reasons why perhaps God does that and then talk about what that means in terms of how we understand this David story that we're working through. One reason I think that God uses messed up people is that bad examples can be useful, right? Bad examples can be useful. I think bad examples can especially be useful when they hurt. Maybe you've had the same experience I have had where you have had a boss or you have seen somebody who is in a position of authority who used that in a way that was arbitrary and capricious, who used their authority in a way that harmed people rather than helped them, in a way that was self-serving. And it's bad enough when you see it happening, but when it happens to you and you're the one who's harmed you remember that sort of thing, don't you? I think God uses messed up people because those bad examples can be useful. Sometimes they really stick in your mind as things that you don't want to do. If you get in that kind of position, no matter what, you don't want to do like that guy did. I think bad examples are also useful because we can identify with them ourselves, can't we? We certainly can see ourself in these weak, broken, fallen characters in Scripture. These people who mean well but fail to come through. Or these people who really don't mean well at all and nevertheless God uses them. And I think that's a second reason that God uses these messed up people. Not just because these bad examples can be useful, but also because through messed up people God can demonstrate His power. If you look back to Deuteronomy and Torah, God reminds the people of Israel. He actually does this over and over and over. I'll just mention one place in Deuteronomy 7 where Moses says to the people, you know, remember, Yahweh, the Lord, did not set His affection on you. He didn't choose you because you were more numerous than other people. 
In fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. He didn't choose you because you were the best looking. He didn't choose you because you were the smartest. He didn't choose you because you were the really most terrific people out there. In fact, you guys are a bunch of jerks. You guys are a bunch of screw-ups. But it was because Yahweh loved you anyway, and he kept the oath that he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, nobody is going to think that this people did it on their own. Right? It would be like if I won a ballet competition. Nobody is going to think that I did that out of my own strength or power or sense of artistic excellence. No, I would need a serious amount of divine help to pull that off. And that's the point. I mean, throughout Scripture, God is picking the, the people, as Joe talked about uh, last week, the people who seem the least likely are in fact the very ones that God uses. Later on, when the people are brought back from exile, they're about to be brought back from exile, Ezekiel, and you know, we, we went through Ezekiel almost 10 years ago and it still is bearing so much fruit, isn't it? Isn't it? Ezekiel says, chapter 36, starting in verse 22, he says, God says to, to uh, Ezekiel, therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord Yahweh says, it's not for your sake, house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, that I'm going to bring you back to your land and enable you to defeat your enemies. It's not for your sake, but I'm doing this for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. The, the, the idea was God was going to choose a people. Those people were going to be living billboards for the one true God of the universe. They were going to live well. They were going to have health and prosperity and peace, and there would be justice. And the people around them would say, wow, what has this people got going on? And they would say, well, we worship Yahweh, the one true Lord of the universe. Problem was, Israel didn't follow God faithfully, and so they didn't experience the kind of health and justice and prosperity they were supposed to. They got taken advantage of by the nations around them. At the end, they were trying to play a diplomatic game, and they ended up basically in a round of musical chairs standing up. And so God said, I'm going to restore you after you've done all these things so I can show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. You were supposed to be representing me well. Instead, you made my name trash. But I am nevertheless going to restore you for the sake of my reputation so that the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. I'm going to do this not for your sake, I'm going to do this for the sake of my name. In fact, once again, the fact that you will be restored to your land is going to be evidence of the fact that you have supernatural help because everybody knows there's no way you could do this on your own. There are a couple characters in the Scripture that I think illustrate this well. Some of the kids may have Seen the Veggie Tales, uh, Gideon Tuba Warrior. Any kids seen that one? Uh, so Gideon was was actually not in uh, according to Scripture a tuba warrior. Although I don't think we can conclusively state that he did not play the tuba. Uh, Gideon 
and this is in chapter 6 of Judges, Gideon comes on the scene when Israel, the nation, has been faithless. They have, as as the, the narrator says, done evil in the sight of the Lord. So they've been handed over into the hand of the Midianites, one of these oppressive foreign nations that that they were supposed to be able to handle without any trouble but of course they couldn't because they had lost God's protection his blessing because they'd been unfaithful and so when we find Gideon Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press right now we look at that like threshing wheat in a wine press what does that mean so a wine press right believe it or not, a wine press is a place where you make wine by pressing grapes, hence the name. But the way you do that is you basically have a, a depression, a place that's, that can collect all of the wine, and, and you press the grapes, and thanks to gravity, the, the juice comes out. Well, when you thresh wheat, you do it the opposite way. You don't do it in a, in a depression, you do it on, on a, a high exposed place, because when you're basically beating the grains out, you want the, the chaff to blow away. Gideon is threshing grain inside a wine press, which is inefficient, but it's the kind of thing you do when you are trying to hide what you're doing because otherwise the Midianites are going to come along and take your wheat. And so as he's there threshing wheat in a wine press... The, the angel of Yahweh appears to him and says, Yahweh is with you, mighty warrior. <laughs> right? Gideon is anything but a mighty warrior. Gideon is this scared kid threshing wheat in a wine press. This is not the behavior of a mighty warrior. This is the behavior of a wimp. And then Gideon goes on at God's command to raise an army together He rallies an army together, and moving on to chapter 7. So he gets these guys together, and they're all camped at uh, the spring of Harod, and and Yahweh says to Gideon, you got too many guys. You have way too many men. So here's what you need to do. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, right? in order to make sure nobody has any doubt as to who actually won the victory here. So you need to tell everybody, anybody who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. 22,000 guys turned tail and left. But you got 10,000 left. And Yahweh says to Gideon, you still got too many men. So take them down to the water. I'm going to sort them out for you there. So I'm going to tell you which ones to take and which ones not to. So... Gideon takes the guys down to the water, and they all start drinking, right? Guys are thirsty, they start drinking. Now, most of them would bend down and cup their hand and drink out of their hand. But there were 300 of them who put their face down in the water and lapped it up like a dog. Now, I have not been through basic training, but I'm pretty sure that as a matter of military tactics, readiness is going to be enhanced by being able to look around when you're drinking like this, because if you've got your face in the river, anybody can sneak up on you, right? Those are the 300 people God says to take. 
So he wants Gideon, this wimp, to take 300 morons to go and defeat the nation of Midian. And the way he did it was with a trick where they had these torches hidden in pots and then they basically you know, bashed them open, blew the trumpets, all the Midianites got confused and pretty much killed each other. And the point was, God wants to show, you did not do this, I'm the one who accomplished this. So God uses idiots like Gideon. He also uses hostile powers. One of the, uh, you know, it's, it's, God does this, this jujitsu thing with, with uh, the foreign nations. You have uh, the, the story told in, in Isaiah about the way that God uses Cyrus. King Cyrus, the king of the Persians, this at the time was the nation that was over Israel. Remember the deal is Israel's supposed to be living as its own sovereign state under God's authority, but but they're under the thumb of first the Babylonians and now the Persians. And and here's what Isaiah says, God says. He says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what Yahweh says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him, to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Did Cyrus know that he was God's anointed? No, I don't think so. Did Cyrus think that he was doing things in order to accomplish the purposes of the God of Israel? No, I don't think so. Cyrus, as far as he knew, was doing the stuff that he wanted to do for the sake of his own glory. But God, nevertheless, was able to use him and to make him his instrument, even in spite of himself, because God uses all kinds of messed up people to accomplish his purposes, including people like Cyrus who aren't even his people. And I won't go into the story, but you'll remember from our time in 1 Corinthians, that's the kind of guy Paul was. I mean, Paul was somebody who was, was vigorously persecuting God's people. He's persecuting the church. God got his attention. Paul became a convert. Paul started preaching and ultimately died for this Jesus whose followers he once persecuted. So God uses messed up people because bad examples can be useful. He uses messed up people to demonstrate his power. And I think another reason that God uses messed up people is because by doing so, he leaves us longing for something better. Later on in the narrative of the monarchy, we get horribly disappointed. You you read the story of a bad king after a bad king after a bad king. You know, the king walked in the ways of his fathers and he did not remember the law. And, and they're, they're leading the people into all kinds of wickedness and idolatry and they're weak and it's, it's an awful situation. And you read this and you're thinking, oh, if we could only have just one good king, then maybe the story would get turned around. Maybe God's people could do okay. And then God gives them Josiah. And Josiah is a good king. He's a great king. He finds the book of the law he he has it makes sure it's it's read and that everybody knows what they're supposed to do and he institutes uh the proper practices of worship and he tears down the 
the high places where, the, where, where idolatry was being practiced. He does all sorts of the right things. And then Josiah dies and his son comes along and starts messing up again. As Joe's been talking about, so much of this David story is really a setup for reading the Jesus story. Because in the Jesus story, we read somebody who finally is not messed up. When we read about Jesus, we read about somebody who does do the right things all the time. And that is such a contrast, and that's such a wonderful thing to encounter because we have been so accustomed to reading these stories of God using these messed up people to accomplish His purposes. Having done that, we have this longing that God satisfies in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, at this point in the story, David's looking pretty good. You don't think David's going to be in that messed up category. Sure, he doesn't look like the Israeli, Israelite king from central casting, but he's looking pretty good. We find out that uh, not only does he have skills as a shepherd, next week we'll learn that he's got a good arm and a good eye. We find out this week with a story about David and Saul where Saul has been depressed. He's got this evil spirit from God tormenting him and they get David to come. They say, you know, we hear this David kid can shred. So David shows up with his Hofner bass and his violin. He's got his Paul Reed Smith guitar. And he shows up and he starts shredding on the lyre for King Saul and, and it helps. when Saul's depression is Mitigated by David being able to play for him. But if you've read the story, you know that David doesn't look all that good for all that long. He also, we do know he has some agility because later on uh, we're going to find that Saul tries to, to throw spears at him while he's playing, which is not the way we treat musicians around here at New Hope. I want you to know, Andrew. But as we know, David does not end well. Most of the story of David's life and kingship is very much a go-and-do-otherwise kind of thing. And Saul has already gotten well down that road by this point. Saul in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, is when, when, when Saul is supposed to be appointed king when he's supposed to be consecrated as king like his big moment he's hiding among the luggage right and it's hard for Saul to, they say he's head and shoulders above everybody else so imagine this tall guy trying to hide among the luggage this is like the groom trying to hide in the church on his wedding day he offers unworthy sacrifices he gets tired of waiting for Samuel the prophet to show up so he figures, well, I'll just do the sacrifices myself that Samuel's supposed to do. Samuel shows up and says, what did you do? That's not for you to do. He takes a rash oath. He says, I'm going to kill anybody who, who eats before we win this battle. And it turns out that his son, Jonathan, has eaten some honey. Oops. And then he's about to go through on it and everybody talks him out of it. He's supposed to utterly destroy the Amalekites, but he, he saves their king... Agog, and he saves some of the best of the animals. And 
Then he, then he has the, the gall to show up to Samuel and say, hey, look, I did exactly what I was supposed to do. Check me out. And Saul's, Samuel's like, no, you didn't do exactly what you were supposed to do. Uh, I, I hear all of these cattle bleeding and these sheep bleeding and, uh, sorry, the sheep bleeding, the cattle lowing. The point being, I hear animals and I should not be hearing animals because you were supposed to completely destroy them. And, 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 then, and, then, and then Saul, right, like the, the change in pronouns is abrupt. He's like, they did that. They saved them. Look what the people, look what the nation did. Israel, they brought these animals. C- can you believe it? I, uh, so he lies to the prophet. He blames the people. Probably makes an insincere confession about that. But nevertheless, what we have in this story in our passage today is David serving Saul faithfully. David knows at this point that he has been anointed to be king, but he also knows that his job is to serve the guy who is in that throne. And so David does. He serves him faithfully, and as we'll see in the story, he does demonstrates his faithfulness at the risk of his own life over and over and over again. And so it is with us. God will often call us to serve faithfully somebody that we may not think all that much of. I, I love it in First Timothy 2 when Paul is talking about prayer for our leaders. He says, I urge first of all that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, to kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. It pleases God our Savior because He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, we read that and we're like, oh, that's, that's pleasant. Paul's writing this at a time, quite possibly, where the emperor is one of those emperors who was turning Christians into lamps, i.e. he was crucifying them and burning them alive. And Paul says, you need to pray for him, for all those in authority. You know, sometimes this faithful service can bear fruit in in all kinds of happy ways. We'll also read about David and Jonathan. Jonathan, Saul's son. David and Jonathan were tight. They were bros. They they loved each other. They, They couldn't get enough of each other. And Jonathan knew that David was serving his father not because of who he was, but in spite of who he was. But sometimes, faithfully serving somebody who is messed up simply is something that you do because that's what God calls you to do to be faithful. Paul also says in his letter to the Philippians, he says, after he talks about who Jesus is and how we're supposed to emulate Him, he says, I want you to do everything without grumbling or complaining so that you can become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and perverse generation. And Colossians, at the end of chapter 3, he says, do whatever you do with all your heart, working as unto God and not to people, because you know you're going to receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So kids, when you are doing your math homework, especially if you don't like your math teacher, and you get to number 17 out of 23 problems, and you're so sick of doing long division, 
work as unto the Lord, not as unto your math teacher. Because it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the examples that you give us. These examples that enable us to learn how to live well and how to live badly and how we can avoid doing that. We thank You for the examples You show us of how the Holy Spirit demonstrates the power of God in spite of people. We thank You for the many ways that You place in our hearts a longing for You, a longing that only You can satisfy, a desire to see perfection that You alone embody. We pray, Lord, that we would follow at least this part of David's story, at least in this part we would follow his example of somebody who serves faithfully as he's called to. That we learn what it is to work for you, not for people. We would do that without grumbling or complaining, but that we would do it wholeheartedly as service to you. All this we ask for the sake of your reputation in this world. Amen.